you're listening to the Vanderbilt Business Review Podcast. We are a student-run business journal under Vanderbilt Student Communications. Hello and welcome to the Vanderbilt Business Review Podcast, Episode 3, and our very first episode of the new school year. I'm your host, Rahul, and I'm joined here by Gabriel, Maxwell, and Matthew. We have two topics lined up for today's discussion in our podcast, and we're going to dive right into the first one, which is the new Biden infrastructure bill, which the House has just passed. Um, The infrastructure bill is around $1.2 trillion, and in it, there is $550 billion in new spending, and the rest is going to be coming from existing revenues. Um, However, originally, the original bill uh, that was proposed by the Biden administration was around $3.5 trillion. So, Maxwell, I want to go to you first. Uh, first, what are your thoughts on the bill itself? And do you think this has any legs to go through the Senate and actually be passed? Uh, well, as you said, the bill has been massively watered down, massively reduced from its original $3.5 billion. And some of the things that have been taken out include you know, the second largest measure in the original plan, which was to bolster caregiving for aging and disabled Americans, as well as um, things like workforce development, and the renovation of uh, VA hospitals, which are much older than uh, most other hospitals in the U.S. So these are things that perhaps we wouldn't normally think of as infrastructure in the sense of like roads and bridges and then airports and seaports, things like that. But of course, those aren't the only things in this country that you know business relies on to get work done. These aren't the only you know things that help the society function on an organizational level like roads and bridges are. So the this bill really goes further in expanding what the traditional idea of infrastructure is. And there are still things in the bill that are like that, although they've been reduced. There are things like $65 billion for improving the country's broadband internet access. There are $7.5 billion for electric cars. And, you know, th- it's just another example of how um, infrastructure is not just roads and bridges. It's not just, you know, transportation. It's all of these different networks like the power grid, water supply, all of these things that help our society function both physically and on an organizational level. Um, But a lot of things that are missing as well are ways that we can pay for the bill, including tax increases on corporations and a 15% minimum tax rate on corporations. Um, and so a lot of this will be actually paid for with deficit spending instead. Um, there are some savings by ending pandemic programs early, such as the um, extended unemployment benefits. Um, tr- you know, They wanted to end those early to try and force people back to work, and they're clawing back some of that money to pay for this bill. And they're also paying for it by trying to better enforce taxes on cryptocurrencies. So there's a lot of ways that they're trying to uh, reduce the impact of this bill on the deficit, given that they've been unable to include their uh, new taxes in the bill. But overall, it's something that uh, goes far beyond what we normally think of as infrastructure. In terms of whether it can actually pass, though, that's you know, that's more unclear. Even though the Democrats technically control the majority, they only have 50 votes in the Senate. They would need 60 to get past a potential filibuster. And there is the possibility of reconciliation, the complex parliamentary procedure that 
theoretically could get the vote through with just 50 votes, but senators such as Joe Manchin of West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who are Democrats, but very moderate Democrats, it's unclear if they're going to support reconciliation, and it's unclear if they're going to support the bill because of the level of uh, deficit spending that's included in it. I think, Maxwell, you bring up a great point with the the whole deficit spending and the fact that um, there's, there's not going to be the support that among the Democrats that maybe a lot of progressives and um, more liberal people would like. Here's the... Uh, here, here's 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 my opinion on it. Um, there's already been some compromise on the bill, as we mentioned, 1.2 trillion rather than 3.5 trillion, right? I think that's the one thing, is that we have to is that as a nation, as a country, we have to they, there has to be some type of spending on infrastructure. In terms of a developed country, our broadband is not up to par. Our electric car infrastructure is not up to the par of other developed countries in the world. I would feel like just those. That alone, there probably would be a potential passing of the bill in the Senate, even to get past the filibuster to get the 60 votes needed, because there was Republican support within the House of Representatives on this bill. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, 13 members of the House um, passed this bill, and so just on that on that basis, on the basis of that alone, there is a possibility of this bill passing. Um, perhaps another thing that. I feel that should be talked about in this bill that maybe people and politicians have not been considering is how is this going to really affect the everyday American in terms of our lives, in terms of in terms of um, our taxes, things of that sort, or what we can do with our money. Um, so I guess I want to kind of touch on the any of the pandemic programs early. Will will some of the, will some of the le- very uh, far left or Democrats be in agreement of that, of ending these pandemic programs early, right? Because that's something that's been very, these pandemic programs have been very popular in the Democratic Party, not so much among the Republicans. Um, so that's probably just one thing that we have to also look at is there's po- the possibility that the extremes of the both parties or of both wings of the, you know, the left wing or versus the right wing probably have disagreements, disagreements with this bill, but for very different reasons. Just want to get some of your thoughts on, on that. Well, okay, so I'm going to go a bit off topic here. So I guess I'm a bit pessimistic that even if this bill did get passed, how effective it would be. Um, I don't think this is going to be a game changer just because um, it's highly based on raising um, corporate taxes. But the thing is, there's several tax avoidance strategies firms can legally use um, to lower their federal corporate tax bills. Um, and even in some cases, you'll see it get as dramatically low as zero. And the thing is, the only way to really stop that is to get other global economies to really agree to, um, like, not allow... Um, this to happen really under their watch or um, to prevent this from happening. But the thing is, I think it's highly unlikely that the U.S. will be able to agree agree with a lot of other global economies on what the global minimum tax rate should be. And, and, that, and because of that, I really don't 
think this is going to have the great effect many people are expecting. Um, so yeah, so well, first of all, has to pass to even have had an effect on anything, right? In, in the Senate, I, I guess that's the main thing. I also would like to touch upon the um, the fact that taxes on cryptocurrency—that's another thing that I find kind of interesting in the bill because this is some, you know, the whole crypto boom that's going on right now, right? People buying into crypto, all these types of coins, whether they be what we like to call meme coins nowadays or the established coins like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, I just like to touch on the enforcing of taxes on cryptocurrencies. That alone is probably going to be that could be just another aspect of the bill to dissuade. Um, you know, votes in the Senate from passing because at the end of the day, you know, taxing on cryptocurrency can be viewed as just a tax on trying to make, in, you know, a tax on just trying to get a new currency, essentially, right? At, at least in the eyes of some people in the, you know, in the country. Um, yeah, so I'm just wondering um, if if we're relying on a tax on a ba- effectively just, you know, another currency, is, is are we going to even have enough uh, you know, we're basically gonna have to go into deficit spending, but more than we would than we would even like, just because of the fact that how much can we really tax on cryptocurrency, and how are we gonna be able to control crypto? You know, how are we going to be able to monitor you know the cryptocurrency? Because there's so many different um, trades, and um, I mean, people have hidden wallets all over the place, right? I mean, that's just another interesting implication I saw in the bill that was a little bit odd. Uh, in my opinion, but just wondering, you know, what are your views on that? Well, the taxes on cryptocurrencies already exist, but they rely on the holder of the currency to actually report every single transaction they make with the currency, which is exactly not super realistic. And this, what the 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 bill would do is require certain platforms such as Coinbase to report everyone's transactions, and it's really aimed at um, enforcing the existing taxes on cryptocurrencies. Right. But the thing, that here's the thing with these platforms on cryptocurrency, most crypto holders are not using Coinbase to hold their crypto. At least the big, in terms of the people, the, the, the people or companies who hold the vast majority of cryptocurrency. While Coinbase has a lot of people, individuals holding crypto there, they're holding what? $1,000, $2,500 worth of crypto in Coinbase, right? Meanwhile, corporations, companies, and other big crypto players are holding in wallets worth millions and millions of dollars, and of course, as you said, probably not reporting it. So that's where I question the effectiveness of even in, you know trying to further hound down on these crypto wallets that are that on, on these crypto wallets that um people have or at least these platforms, right? Because at the end of the day, where are we going to get the tax money? We're going to tax the average Joe who's putting in who's putting in a, an extra ten percent of their paycheck worth of crypto from last week. Or is the money going to be made on those hidden crypto wallets? It's a hidden crypto wallets. But once again, there's no mechanisms in place right now to really try to, you know, tax those wallets and the people, you know, and any, you know, any corporations or any parties who hold anything in those hidden wallets. So that's where I see the lack of effectiveness in this aspect of the bill in order to raise funds. I think this goes back to Matt's point about this bill not really being a game changer. I mean, you can see that this cryptocurrency tax, the uh, claiming of pandemic program savings as funding for this bill. Um, they're really trying to include as many like different little funding sources as they can to try and reduce some of the uh, what looks like the deficit impact of the bill. And 
I mean, what Matt said, again, it doesn't seem like it's really going to be a game changer because it's been watered down so much. A lot of progressive Democrats are really not happy with the bill, and, and some of them voted against it in the House. And it's really somewhat of a compromise between the moderates and the progressives that will let the bill pass this time, you know, without arguing that it's too small, if uh, the House leadership promises that the uh, larger social spending bill will have a vote later this month. But, of course, whether that will pass the House and, of course, the Senate Doubt it. also remains to be seen. Well, as students, right, on Vanderbilt, is there something that maybe we should also look into this bill or, like, how is it going to impact us on campus? Well, I mean, here's, uh, like I said, um, uh, I talked about a lot of Vanderbilt students, I'm sure, hold a little bit of stuff in their crypto wallets, right? So if they decide to put a tax onto Coinbase, um, that could be impactful. But furthermore, it's more of how will it impact our future, right? How is this bill going to impact us 10, 20, 30 years down the line? Um, and also, how will it impact us now? And the way it will impact us now is with the educational prospects of the bill, right? I mean, for one, there is there is um, increased uh, funding towards education p- pros on the bill. So, for example, that could maybe uh, that could probably be via various uh, sources, whether it be more financial aid, right? Um, you know, more Pell Grant money given out, um, perhaps the um, you know, perhaps those are probably the outlets for the educational prospects, but also how it impact our work pr- working prospects in the future because of the fact that the bill is going to open up a lot of um, you know, per, uh, a lot of new jobs, both via blue collar but also perhaps white collar jobs. For example, managing all these different projects, so that could probably be a positive for the for a Vanderbilt student, pr- probably engineering students, right? Uh, civil engineers as the first thing I think of when I what I think of an infrastructure bill. Um, but, you know, just wondering, like, how else could it impact us financially in terms of our taxes, you know, within the next 10 years when we're deep, when we're in our careers, um, probably hitting those higher tax brackets. All right, and that concludes our first topic. Now, moving on to our next topic of discussion, the Federal Open Market Committee recently just met earlier this month and in it, they discussed and decided that they're going to be tampering bond buying by almost $15 billion starting this month and through middle of 2022. So, uh, Maxwell, your thoughts on this decision? Well, just in time for a potential large fiscal expenditure, the monetary side of uh, the government is deciding to reduce its support for the economy by reducing its bond buying Uh, per month and although it's not because they're afraid of inflation or anything like that they believe that the current high inflation is still due to transitory factors um, not caused by things like a tight labor market and so the Fed is not really concerned about a wage price spiral here Um, but that being said this tapering was probably somewhat inevitable given that the pandemic caused them to launch into a huge wave of bond buying in order to try and stabilize the economy, try to stimulate it back to life. Um, But of course, uh, the usefulness of that program has probably now uh, come to an end. Um, They're not trying to raise interest rates at this point. 
uh, because we're not, you know, they're not trying to uh, drag the economy back. But, you know, a lot of Vanderbilt students will have had the famous class with Stephen Buckles in which he ties a rope to a chair to prove that um, the Fed can pull the chair backwards, you know, to symbolize the economy. They can restrict its growth, but you cannot use uh, monetary policy to push the chair with the rope, so to speak. The economy can't really be stimulated as effectively by monetary policy as by fiscal policy. So uh, the Fed is going to have to, at some point, come down from the high level of uh, bond buying that they needed during the pandemic. And, you know, its place is now going to be taken possibly by fiscal spending instead. Yeah, I also find it very interesting that the timing of the Federal Reserve's decision to reduce bond buying, right? As we all know, and I want all of you to just tell me in unison, what holiday is coming within the next month and a half? Christmas, Black Friday, all of that holiday spending bonanza. Bingo, exactly. All of that holiday spending, right? So what um so it's very so what is the Fed doing here? The Fed knows that there's going to be a movement of money around the economy. The economy will be stimulated just by seasonal normal factors, right? Via a lot of consumer spending in the next coming time. So personally this is a very good decision for the Fed to reduce bomb buying. Also, the fact that we do not need these um, stimulants in the economy, you know, these monetary stimulants in the economy anymore. Let's take, it, let's take a look at, for example, home prices around the country. Throughout the pandemic have skyrocketed, okay? Home prices have increased tremendously to the point where in some places, like my hometown of Miami itself, they're becoming almost unaffordable to buy a home. And why? Because, well, there's a, you know, mortgages were very, very low. They were below two, they were below two and a half percent at some point. Of course, a lot of people are going to buy homes, want to buy homes, right? For a 30 year mortgage, just because of how cheap, you know, just because of how cheap the cost of borrowing is. But just because of the fact that the Fed now is going to reduce bond buying, bond buying, that will inadvertently raise, you know, interest rates and, of course, you know, rates for, uh, for mortgages will rise. For example, just as of now, the mortgage rate, the rate to get a 30-year mortgage is at 3.24%. And what's, this going to, what's the implication of this and for us as Vanderbilt students and for the market as a home, uh, for the market as a whole? Well, for one, it's going to dampen the demand for homes for right now, right? We are going to probably see that exponential increase in the rise of home values in certain places like my hometown Miami. I know Colorado also has had a huge increase in home prices. Those increases will probably be a lot less sharp than they were before. So what is the other thing? Is that let's say you graduate from college now this next year, right? The 2022 or 2023. And let's say you want to buy a home Say your career goes really well in five years and you want to buy a home for five in, in five years, whether it be via for rental or investments, rental or living, I mean. Um, the home prices might probably be, could be somewhat reasonable just because the Fed has decided to stop reduce bond buying probably a little earlier than some economists that might have even anticipated. Um, you know, people, 
people are thinking that this might continue on until the end of 2021, but, well, I guess we are almost at the end of 2021, but these two months short could be a big difference in, you know, within the next 10 years in terms of the price of homes and the interest and the cost of borrowing for any type of loan you want to take out and things of that sort. So I would just like to get some of your thoughts on, you know, what do we think about how it's going to have an effect for when we want to buy a home in five years? Yes. So I just wanted to note that for the most part, salary increases don't match um, quite at the same rate as inflation increases, which makes people worse off. And therefore, this is why I'm in support of them trying to take measures to like slow down inflation. For instance, per SHRM online, um, the average salary increase budget was lower this year and than in pre-pandemic years. And um, they reported that the salary increase budgets for 2021 actually declined for the first time in 12 years, which kind of gives you an idea of, you know, how rare this is. We're going back to the 2008 recession here. Um, and average raises in 2022 are likely going to be higher than in 2021. But once again, um, if things were to go as they currently are, um, the salary increases would still trail inflation. So I think um, by doing this, they're helping um, the more common man and woman. So. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I definitely see that. Um, yeah, definitely. So probably a topic that's been under spoken about just in general, right? The fact that our salaries today for the average American worker are not reflecting the price increases in the economy as a whole. I saw a statistic the other day that in the 1970s, the average American could afford, the, the person with an average salary could afford a home probably um, worth at a value to, you know, the equivalent of maybe, let's say, the same home that would cost $500,000 today, they were able to afford that type of home back then, someone with the average salary. Now, of course, the homes back then did not cost 500000 The home that cost 500000 today probably was um, maybe north of one fifty at the most, right? Um, that's just an interesting stat that, that um, certainly there's a lot of factors that have not helped the, the general public um, in terms of their economy and that high inflation has always been outpacing salary increases. And I guess that probably is lending into, um, you know, the whole, the whole labor shortage that's been going on throughout the pandemic, right, is due to the fact that people, you know, are demanding higher wages just because of the fact that our wage, wages for the average American worker just simply have been outpaced by inflation. So I definitely agree that in terms of what the Fed can do and in reducing bond buying, it is probably the best is probably the the best measure that could ultimately be done in order to help the average show um in this country. Now whether there should be wage increases across the board mandated by the actual government, that's something that's out of the scope of this conversation, in my opinion, just because we are, you know, mentioning the Fed and monetary policy rather than, you know, fiscal policy or any other type or, you know, anything that's done by Congress, um, which I would feel would be more in the jurisdiction of a wage increase. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring up the, 
uh, wages not keeping up because of course we are seeing really tight labor market and we're seeing you know what is perceived as this massive labor shortage this uh increase in wages that so many businesses are trying to avoid or they're concerned about but really it's uh we're just getting back to where we should have been without this past uh economic crisis without the 2008 economic crisis you know just looking at trends before that exactly as well as the trends in productivity growth compared to wage growth you know wages have not increased uh as much as productivity has increased so americans have been getting more work done for less money essentially and so you know perhaps this is a correction perhaps it's you know a little bit more transitory but um you know this uh focus on the labor market perhaps is of course it's you know it's an interesting point it's an important point but the focus on it as a point of concern is you know the fed isn't concerned about it and you know we probably shouldn't be too concerned about whether you know wages are rising too fast or anything like that so you know it's it makes sense that you know for the government as a whole uh less money is being pumped into the top levels of the financial system the financial sector the banks and more money is being pumped into the you know more common parts of the economy like creating new jobs for infrastructure and all the other parts of uh Biden's plans that you know really ties into the our discussion here about the Fed. Yeah, I I I liked I I really do admire Maxwell how we very how we've able been able to tie this topic about the Federal Open Market Committee decision into the Biden infrastructure plan. I mean, at the end of the day, these all go hand in hand even though they are independent of each other. Right? And I think there's um one more point that you know i would i would like to bring up and that is perhaps the you know potential job growth i think we should maybe expand a little bit on that point in my opinion um so we saw that the target rate for job growth is still at its 0.25% job growth um i think you know that's definitely a good target rate and hopefully hopefully um Hopefully the Fed can decide to um hopefully the Fed you know can also enact maybe more measures to just encourage uh further job growth if Maxwell you'd like to discuss on that. 0.25% is the target rate for the federal funds rate um so they're oops <laughs> they're they're trying to keep that federal funds rate low in order to not hinder future job growth so you know that's it's another example but you know it ties into the same thing right they they want to keep job growth high in the economy so you know even though they're tapering right they're reducing support for economic growth but they still want to see growth at you know at the you know at the grassroots level of the economy you know job growth as opposed to you know pumping money into buying bonds and things like that i think it'll be interesting to see what the breaking point is um in terms of getting people um back to work we speak about how there's a massive labor sh- shortage and it's just simply because you know people don't feel the need to work because um you know they they're able to live a quality a sta- like a a standard life on unemployment or you know through special benefits they get so if we really want 
people to like go out and you know take up some of these jobs i wonder at one what point do maybe employers say hey we need to up our wages just a bit more to incentivize people to come out and work um because truthfully no one really wants to work if we're being honest so uh you know you don't want to work back I mean, I I actually do want to work, but I'm more so a weirdo and exception, not the norm. I'm just built different. Uh, I think I'd like to work too. You know, this whole the whole daily routine of school is getting a little bit well tiring, boring to me. I need something to spice up my life. But you you want to work, but you want to work in a job that you can choose. And if not, then it has to be for a compensation that, you know, matches the fact that you have to do something that you know you may not necessarily. Well, you're want. not wrong, but that leads us to a different discussion, which we want, which we will not get into today. And indeed, because that will actually include our episode for today. I just want to thank all of you for being here today to record this episode. And I want to thank you, the listener, for taking time to listen to this wonderful podcast episode for today. Um, be sure to give our website, VanderbiltBusinessReview.com, a visit. And uh, we hope to see you again uh, listening our episode four, which will be coming out in the next month or so. So thank you and enjoy your day. Thank you, Rahul.